Welcome, everyone. This is episode 40 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Jared Dillion. Jared writes a daily newsletter called The Daily Dirt Nap. He has a podcast called The Be Smart Podcast, and he's the author of Street Freak and All the Evil of This World. Jared, how's it going today? Pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for having me. So I, I listen to your podcast fairly frequently. I'm, I'm curious how you stumbled on the short form podcast. You're doing uh, frequent podcasts of maybe 12 to 15 minutes each. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, before I had the podcast, I had a radio show. I actually had a kind of a small nationally syndicated radio show and uh, it was unsuccessful. We had to shut it down. It was um, losing money. But we switched to a podcast and we were working with a consultant, a radio consultant. And he's like, look, like, you know, the popular podcasts nowadays are actually the short ones because people get in their car, they drive 15 minutes somewhere, they can listen to a whole podcast. It's self-contained. And, um, you know, he said that's kind of the new trend. Uh, and all the podcasts I've been doing so far are just me. I haven't had any guests. Um you know, I'll have guests at some point and those will be longer, but, uh, you know, for the rest of them, it's just me and I just do a 12 minute podcast. That's interesting because most people take their cue from, from Joe Rogan, right? He's the most successful podcaster and he's, he's someone who lets interviews go two, three hours. I suppose yeah. it's a different demographic in the sense that maybe people listen to Joe Rogan with a beer in hand or something like this. And a financial podcast maybe consumed at work or something like this? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'll see if it works or not. Um, you know, there are some guests that I want to have on. And uh, there's actually, there's like a local guy in town. I used to have him come on the radio show every Friday night. And he's sort of a, he's sort of an everyman character. You know, he's like a fix and flip contractor. And, you know, we just, you know, BS and like it's, it's huge amounts of fun. So I'm going to start off by having him on. Um, we're going to record something next week and uh, I don't know when it's going to go up. So. So I was a big fan of your book, Street Freak. And I, I do, while I have, have you on, want to get into market outlook. Um, and I, I remember in the first chapter of your book, you talk about your philosophy that markets tend to move in the direction of Max Payne. Um, many people have pointed it out, but having followed your Twitter feed for a long time, I know this is central to the way you think about markets. Um, what, what do you view as the Max Payne trade at this moment? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I don't know when you're publishing this, so maybe it's going to be stale, but this is uh, in Friday the 18th. Uh, February and we're, we're headed into the weekend and, you know, there's this imminent invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia. Um, and the market's been selling off pretty hard um, going into that. So, um, you know, I, I look at everything from a sentiment lens and, you know, like I'm trying to figure out where positioning is like, you know, are, are people short going into the weekend uh, if there's no invasion over the weekend, are people going to have to cover on Tuesday after the long weekend? Um, so that's that's the type of stuff that I think about. I think about sentiment in positioning. Um, you know, I'm positioned a certain way. I had a tweet the other day where I talked about sort of my, you know, two to three week forecast where, you know, I said, I think stocks are, you know, they probably have 10% downside and I think bonds are going to rip and all that's all that's based on sentiment and positioning, you know, just basically people um, trades getting too crowded. The other part of that tweet is you said oil down and gold up the and yep. you, you also claimed that you're going to be the uh, the the pomp cheerleader uh, for gold on the on the way up. <laughs> uh, gold needs some cheerleaders because it's been a tough ride. I I. Uh, I share with you the optimism on gold, but it's been a, a, a brutal, uh, brutal run. Well, it hasn't, it hasn't. I mean, you know, from the, from the highs of 2060, like we really only got down about 15%. I mean, in terms of drawdowns, that's actually not that bad. Um, it feels a lot worse, mostly because 
gold hasn't responded to a whole bunch of catalysts. You know, it hasn't responded to inflation. It didn't really respond to the pandemic. It hasn't responded to budget deficits. So, you know, that's why people are so frustrated with it. But just in, in price terms, like, the you know, this correction, which has lasted a couple of years, it's not that bad, you know. I mean, Bitcoin's down a lot more. You know, Bitcoin's down 50% or was, you know. And on this on the sentiment level, I I remember last summer you wanted to be bullish on gold and you were long-term bullish on gold, but you were short-term bearish based on what you were seeing from sentiment. And in particular, there were there were days where there was slightly disappointing Fed speak and gold was down, say, $40. And you made the observation that would it have been up $40 if the the Fed speak had oh, been yeah. gold favorable? And, and you were posing it uh, rhetorically because it was clear that the answer was no. Um, yeah. And so the sentiment has has changed more recently. And that's kind of what, what gets you uh, quite bullish at the moment. Yeah. And I noticed, I noticed a change in the price action. Like, you know, you'd walk in every morning, eight o'clock, eight 30, they'd slam it down 20 bucks. And this was happening like every single day. And then a couple of weeks ago, there was a change and, you know, those gold smashes stopped. And, you know, it's, it, you, you probably heard of Mark Minervini. He's the guy that, you know, got lambasted because he didn't know what upstart was like on CNBC, but he's a super smart guy and an excellent trader. But he said, he always said that you want to own stocks or not just stocks, but any asset that acts like a tennis ball, like it goes down and it bounces. And like three weeks ago, gold started acting like a tennis ball. And I noticed the change in price action. I said, no, something's, something's different, you know? Um, so I, you know, I had a decent sized position before and in the last week or two, I've made it much larger. Yeah, I've, I'm a long-term gold bull who's super, super favorable on gold at the moment. And when I say it's been a tough ride, it, it hasn't been a tough ride if you look at the price chart. As you point out, there haven't been crazy drawdowns. It's been, it's been a tough ride uh, psychologically since, let's just say, mid-2019, where gold was not too much lower than it is right now, maybe a hundred a hundred to two hundred dollars lower than it than it was than it is right now. But um over the period of that time, you've had everything that a gold holder could ever dream of, right? Oh, Four yeah. trillion dollar deficits and infinite money printing and all of this. Um so you would have expected that it would it would behave more favorably. And if you if you put it gold in terms of like what everything else has done, right? What the cost of real estate has done and this sort of thing, it, it hasn't looked so, so great. So my friend, Brent Donnelly, who used to work with the Lehman, you've probably seen him on Twitter. Uh, he, he said something awesome the other day. He called me a gobbler, you know, like a hodler for Bitcoin, but I'm a gobbler for gold. Um, and I have been gobbling gold since 2005. I mean, that's when I started building a position. Uh, so I've held it for 16 years. And my thesis was that, you know, why hold gold instead of stocks? Well, I said, well, I think gold's going to outperform stocks over a period of decades. Uh, and it's actually, it ended up being about a push. Um, if you go back to 2005, the performance of gold is about equal to the performance of stocks, which is kind of interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, like, you know, over the last 100 years, gold has returned about 4% a year. But since 1971, it's returned a lot more than that. And you have these periods of time in history where, you know, gold, the, the, the appreciation of gold is just much faster than stocks. So I think we're in one of those times. Yeah, in uh, Dalio's framework, uh, gold t tends to do very well when you're in the middle of the crisis, which which did hold um, during the great financial crisis, gold had its big rally point when stocks were doing quite poorly in the, in the, uh, in the depths really of the financial yeah. crisis. Um, and part of that might be people are 
seeking an alternative. And then part of it clearly is that people see the, the policy changes, the aggressive uh, money debasement that's likely to come and they jump into gold. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about the recent correction in growth stocks. Um, obviously, uh, some reversion in the value versus growth factors was likely to come. Um, we have had somewhat severe corrections in, in growth. Um, you started your career, I think, at the tail end of the dot-com bubble or, or just as the dot-com bubble was popping, if I'm recalling correctly. 99. And I wonder, I wonder which popping of a growth bubble will see fewer people make money on the short side, that one or this one. I say that because um, it's always interesting like how far the growth factor can go when it really runs, right? How far a bubble can go. And of course, in the dot-com bubble, some people made money shorting stocks on the way down but not many people because anyone that had the inclination to short was likely short in 1998 or 1999 and had their face ripped off before they could materialize any gains. And this one um, is somewhat similar where people that have had the taste for shorting grow stocks as part of their portfolio, maybe running some sort of long short book, um, have had a tough time staying the course because what happened with the growth factor was so explosive. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm up on my screen. I got a chart of Facebook and, you know, Facebook has just been hammered. Um, you know, I really think we, I, I think this rotation from growth to value, not on a long-term basis, but on a short-term basis, um, you know, I don't, I forget the statistic, but it's like 70% of NASDAQ stocks are down more than 50% or something like that. Like, you know, I, I really, I, I kind of hesitate to like pile on and short stuff here because I think we're closer to the end of that trade than the beginning. Um, like, what are you playing for? Are you playing for down 90%, down 95%? Like, I don't, you know, this is, this trade is at least more than halfway over. Let's put it that way. Um, so I think there's going to be sometime in the next, maybe couple of weeks, you're going to have a chance to play a pretty big bounce in some of these growth names, you know, they're starting to look interesting actually. So, yeah. And some sectors like biotech are very cheap and seemingly a, a very good opportunity by my way of looking at things. I mean, you have, I, I think something like, uh, High twenties percent of of small cap biotechs are trading below cash. So, uh, not that that's yeah. necessarily like a compelling buy, but there must be some compelling buys in there. Yeah. Um. So, I would say that relative to many market commentators, you um you're not prone to maybe some. You share some of my pessimism. That's not fair to say. Um, you have a broad historical lens and you're, you're skeptical of markets that are galloping. You're careful, right? Conservative. And I have a question. Um, you're clearly like of the Generation X, right? Uh, and I would like put myself squarely in that generation. generation X. Yes. And I've noticed that Gen X, there is a shared psychology um, and there has been a shared life experience. And there's clearly a different way of seeing the world between Gen X and Gen Y and then millennials. Um, it, a lot of the sort of techno optimism, it's, it's, it's a rarer trait among Gen X. Have you observed this? Yeah. I mean, well, I, I, I would say as, as, gen, as a generation, Gen X is pretty skeptical. 
and also pessimistic. I mean, you know, the first movie I ever saw in the theater was The Empire Strikes Back. And in The Empire Strikes Back, the bad guys win. Right. That like that screws you up for life. <laughs> you know, you think the bad guys win, you know? So like, what does that do to your psychology? So that's, you know, that's my generation. Um, but I actually, you know, also as a generation, I think that Gen X uh, is, are better investors than millennials or boomers. Um, you know, boomers are extremely rich but they got killed in 2000. They got killed in 2008. They're going to get killed again if they haven't already. Um, they don't, they're, they're terrible risk managers. Uh, millennials are all in crypto, which is or is not going to work out. You know, I mean, Gen X, you know, being skeptical, like I think that they're, they just, they make better investors. Would you agree? Yeah. Um, well, it's a survival instinct, right? I think some of it is, uh, the latchkey generation or whatever what left to tend for themselves more than previous generations uh it's a it's a survival generation a generation that's skeptical doesn't really expect institutions to work very well and position oh, yeah. themselves yeah, to yeah, survive yeah. whereas whereas the younger generation is more optimistic all around and has more faith in institutions. Yeah. The, the crypto thing is interesting because, um, <clears throat> obviously the sort of founding principles of crypto are anti-establishment, anti-institution. Um, and I've always been skeptical of crypto myself, mainly because I, I always have the belief that governments will do what they need to do. And crypto is so obviously against the interest of governments that at a certain point they will stamp it out. This has been my belief for years. It hasn't materialized. Uh, I've made a lot of mistakes not, not being in crypto, but um, <clears throat> I've always felt that governments need to inflate to survive what's coming. They need to control their own currency. And crypto, if large if large parts of the population start transacting and storing their money in crypto, that threatens government's ability to inflate and they, they can't have that and have to stamp it out. But it hasn't materialized yet. I agree with your thesis, but, you know, there are periods of time where the government does the right thing. You know, so from about, uh, I would say, 1982 to 2006, um, you know, we had positive real interest rates, right? And, um, you know, basically the fiscal and monetary authorities were actually, you know, we had something, we were, had something close to a balanced budget, you know, maybe deficit, deficit to GDP of about two or 3%. So this period of time that we're in right now, where what you said about how the government needs to inflate to survive, like that is... I hate to use the word, but it's kind of transitory that like that will pass. Okay. And it might not pass until we go through a lot of pain, but there will come at some, some point in our lifetimes where we will go back to being fiscally responsible. It will happen. I just don't know when. Well, <clears throat> I would argue that it's going to be a long time because demographics put a lot of pressure on budgets given that medical expenses are inflating whatever we think CPI is historically medical expenses have gone up about 7% per year faster than that. Um, and, um, we have large promises in Medicare, Medicaid, social security that are going up as medical expenses go up and as the population ages and the population is aging rapidly um, and we have for now the political will to continue the programs at the promised level. So I, I see sort of large deficits is, is baked in the cake for a long time. Um, I, you know, five, 10 years, but let me put it this way. If inflation gets to like 20 or 30%, which is possible, you know, there's, we're going to, we're going to get to a point where we're going to re we're going to reach a sentiment peak. People are going to get fed up with it. 
you know, just like they did in 1979, you know, like there will, that people will reach their limit in, when it comes to this nonsense. So um, I, I just, like I said, I don't know when that is. I don't know if it's in five years, 10 years, whatever, but you're probably right. It's probably a long time, but I think, you know, before I die, I think we'll see it. Yeah. Um, I mean, inflation on that level in the current environment would just, it would be almost immediate political crack up in my, like, I, I kind of think that I don't see inflation getting there, but I, I feel like if you do have a very unexpected outcome and for whatever reason, money velocity sort of runs away from us and the psychology changes where people just try to convert financial assets to real assets at every opportunity and inflation starts galloping. I think if that happens, that's just like all of the political pressures that have been building for a while, like the social and societal pressures, they just sort of pop off rather than we find a way to deal with it through fed policy and fiscal policy. That's, it's sort of my, my belief. If inflation ever gets there, we've sort of lost the ability to deal with it through existing institutions, kind of. Well, I'm an optimist. <laughs> I, don't think it, I don't think it gets there, um, but you never know, right? These things it's are like unpredictable. That, uh, it's that Winston Churchill quote. He said, Americans can always be counted upon to do the right thing after exhausting all other possibilities. <laughs> yeah. And well, here's the way we've been doing things for a long time is that we've been somewhat okay with traditionally inflationary policies because it's only led to inflation in asset prices, not in goods and services prices. And um, if we start to get high inflation in goods and services prices, then that's when you're starting to, to feel the um, societal cost of inflation, like the true it. And really to some extent, the reason that our policies have been tolerated is because it's been so good for asset prices and politically powerful own a lot of assets. And that's just sort of the way our society has been going. But um, if if we have sustained goods and services inflation, that's so bad for uh, the lower income segments of the population that I feel that the political pressures become really severe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one, I've been thinking back a lot to the market action of 07, 08. Um, and I know that you were deeply involved uh, in the markets and saw firsthand what was going on in real estate there. Um, I was deeply involved later. I was the main research assistant for Michael Lewis on the big short and studied the era quite oh, intensively. Cool. Yeah, it was fun. Um, and you know, the, the front point guys are good friends of mine. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, um, involved in all of the research on the, the collapse of the CDO market. None of the character studies, all of the character studies were Michael. I was, I was all on, um, like facts, timelines, all of this kind of thing. Um, and so I've been thinking back to that period quite a lot because one of the interesting tidbits from that time is that you had commodities running at a seemingly unlikely moment, right? Like oil reached its peak in July of 08. And house prices were declining in most markets by mid 06. And by summer 2007, the, the problems that real estate was going to pose for the financial system was already evident. You had countrywide sort of collapsing in August 07. And it was, it was sort of strange in retrospect that oil was reaching its peak in, 
in the summer of 08. But I think that, um, that commodities are a bit of a choke point for, for the economy and, and one area where the, um, the true cost of irresponsible fiscal and monetary policy can assert themselves. Like, it's possible that we get a real run here in commodity prices. I know your short-term forecast for oil is is lower, and I'm honestly a bit agnostic about oil. Um, but if we happen to have a galloping of commodity prices here, um, it it would create a uh, feedback loop in in prices, which could be quite damaging. Um, yeah, and you started this off saying that, you know, basically the market does what caused the most pain to the most amount of people. And that's exactly what's going to happen because it, it's going to cause the most pain to the most amount of people, especially food, agricultural prices, I think are going to go up a lot. Um, I mean, you know, it's been, it's, they've been going up very quietly for the last three or four months. Um, but you get into the summer and boy, it could be interesting. So your, your view is if, and I might be reading too much into your, into your recent tweets, um, but your view is that the economy is naturally slowing at this moment. Is that, is that correct? Like you think that hold hold the inflation picture aside, you think that economic activity is tending to slow in 2022. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Mostly because we pulled forward a lot of consumption in 20 and 21. Um, and 2022, we're going to have below trend consumption. So I think GDP is going to be lower this year. It's I think it's going to be probably below 3%, maybe 2%. I mean, we're not talking about a recession here, but um, the economy is not going to be as hot as it was the last two years. I'm actually seeing it in my newsletter business, you know, 2020 and 2021 were, were huge years for me. And starting off this year, it's been slow. It's been slow. So um, do you, do you find a correlation in general? Obviously you had it in 2021 with the S and P as a whole, but do you find a correlation in general there that people when they're speculating in stocks and doing well, cause the trend is going up, they're more likely to buy products. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you think that the economy is naturally slowing. Does that, does that also lead you to believe that the, the fed is making, um, a policy mistake or, or rather, um, well, I wouldn't call it a policy mistake. I mean, they have to do what they have to do. You know, the optics of having zero interest rates, with inflation at seven and a half percent, like they absolutely just have to hike rates. But it is true that they're hiking into a slight slowdown. Um, but I don't, you know, we were pricing in seven rate hikes as of last week. Um, that's, it's a little less than that this week. Um, I would be surprised. That's, you know, that's kind of an understatement. I would be very surprised if we had seven rate hikes this year, you know, 1.75%. Um, I actually think they go 25 in March. I do. I don't think they go 50. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of divergent opinions within the fed. I mean, everybody kind of thinks that, you know, okay, it's Bullard, it's Powell, like everybody's, everybody, you know, is panicking about inflation, but you have, you know, you have some people on the fed like Mary Daly, who I don't know if she's a voter or not. I don't think she is, but you know, she's, she's not, she doesn't want 50 basis point rate hikes. You know, she's talking about 25 in March and then being on pause for a while. So, and she's not the only one. So there's, there's a lot of voices within the Fed. And I, I don't really see any scenario where we have seven rate hikes this year. I, I agree with you. Um, part of why I agree with you is, is just the history of it. Um, it turns out that the Fed is one of the most successful jawboning institutions of all times. Like if you look at the, at the history of 
of the past 10 years or, or longer, um, if, you, if you look at futures curves and, and you say, do exactly what you're doing now, say the market's pricing in six, six and a half rate hikes or what have you, um, and then you look at what actually happened, the market has been consistently surprised for a decade. Um, the, the market has simplistically speaking shown a strong tendency to believe Fed guidance, which then turns out to not be true. Like the, the rate hikes never materialize. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's been true for a long time. Yeah, I've seen those charts. Um, so on the one hand, the Fed situation is that they they need to do something because CPI is printing at 7%. And the Fed will still make the argument that CPI is likely to go down. I have some sympathy for those arguments. Um, but they still have to uh, increase rates a bit because it has proved more persistent than they were guessing, say, a year ago. Um, so on the one hand, the Fed needs to tighten policy. On the other hand, we're running big deficits, and there's no sign that deficits are going to decrease anytime soon. Yeah, I know where you're going with this. And I, I hear this all the time, you know, oh, we can't hike rates because of interest expense because because of this debt burden. Um, it, we can, we can hike rates a fair amount before the interest expense gets to be a problem. Like, I don't worry about interest expense necessarily. I worry about the fact that, um, the fed, um, has been the market. Like they, they, they have, uh, no institutions or individuals are, are wanting to buy rates at prevail, buy bonds at prevailing rates. And it used to be that our trading partners were taking large bits of it. They don't anymore. And um, it's really the Fed, right? It's not buying it directly from Treasury, but it might as well be because it's buying it from institutions soon after they buy from Treasury. And uh, without the Fed as the buyer, I don't think anyone is in a hurry to take their, their place. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Fed is like 30% of the mortgage market and whatever percent of the treasury market. Um, I mean, we've seen yields back up a bit. I mean, one of the things that's keeping rates down is really just relative value with the rest of the world. I mean, boons are at 0% and JGBs are at 0%. And, you know, there's a lot less negative yielding bonds out there, but still like, you know, the U.S. is the cleanest dirty shirt. You know, we have 2% yields, you know, which is pretty attractive. So there's really no scenario in which we can have 4% yields and the rest of the world is at zero, right? Because everybody will come in and buy U.S. treasuries. So. Yeah, I, I appreciate that argument. And you, and you think that the Fed, um, you, you think that they're credible this time, fairly credible in, in their hiking regime. Uh, that's a good, that's, <laughs> that's, that's an interesting question. Is the Fed credible? Um, I think, I don't think they want inflation to go down. I think they want to want inflation to go down. If that makes any sense. Right. I don't think they, I don't think they really want to do what it takes to get inflation back down to the target and what it would take is fed funds at seven, eight, 9%, like that they're, they're unwilling to do. So, you know, regardless of what they do, whether they take fed funds to one, one and a half, two, something like that, we're still going to have these big time negative real rates and it's still going to be inflationary. So these guys are not Paul Volcker. Why would it take fed funds rate being that high because what if what if people just like lose a bunch of money this quarter right what if uh bitcoin's down um stocks are down and through the wealth effect we get a natural 
slowing of things, isn't that enough without having no. rates move much? No, it's not. You need positive real rates. You need positive real rates. Yeah. So you think, you think the wealth, the wealth effect channel, which has clearly to my eyes been sort of part of this inflationary boom. Um, you think that if we had steep losses across all asset classes, that would not be, that would not be enough to tame inflation. I mean, it might get CPI from seven to five, but it's not going to get it back down to the target. You know, you need and positive it, real rates. Is, is that based on a view about uh, inflation coming from the supply side versus the demand side, or you just, you just, think no, that's, that's based on a, it's based on a view of history. I mean, you know, how we tamed inflation in the early eighties was by taking fed funds up to levels where we had positive real interest rates and we had positive real interest rates throughout the eighties and throughout the nineties and throughout the two thousands, which kept inflation low. So ever since 2008, we've had negative real interest rates, which is what contributed. Negative real interest rates are the worst thing in the world, causes huge misallocation of capital, causes distortions. Like if you want to look at the worst times in history, it's when you have negative real interest rates, including World War II. I, I have sympathy for that view. That's It's interesting though. I... I uh... I'll have to contemplate this point more. I've not, I've not considered the idea that you could have sort of a destruction on the demand side and still um, have have galloping inflation. Do you think? Um, do you think that at this moment, the Fed, more than in recent history, might be okay with markets tanking? Uh, a little. I mean, there's a lot of discussions about the Fed put and where the Fed put is and what strike. Um, I think that the Fed views these asset price declines as welcome. I think they view it as welcome. Um, I think that the Fed kind of was the last to figure out that we had something resembling a bubble, okay, in stocks. Um, and is fine with seeing it go down 10%, is fine with seeing it go down 20%, 30% probably not, 30% probably not. That's probably where they step in. Interesting. Um, yeah, you think back to say December 18, when seemingly Powell was okay with the markets walking down 20%, but then as soon as it happened, there was a, a quick pivoting of policy. Um, <clears throat> This time it seems like they have they have the tolerance for a bigger declines. I agree with you. It's some the number is somewhere around there, about about thirty percent or so. Yeah. Um there's been there's been talk in financial Twitter about how maybe uh passive investing uh and the increased relevance of option markets and so forth has created uh, more of more feedback loops in financial prices than ever before. Um, and we saw a bit of this in March of 2020, where um, declines were seemingly begetting de declines in the absence of government intervention. Um, do you think that kind of thing is why the Fed might be concerned or tending to step in at 30% like they just would fear some sort of out of control debt deflationary spiral or why, why, why do you place a fed put at that, at that level? Cause that's kind of the level that might bring us back to historical norms or something. Yeah. My whole theory around the fed is that they're, they're a government institution and they're not driven by the profit motive. They're driven by embarrassment. Okay. It's all about politics and it's all about saving face. And you know, the thing about, the Fed hiking rates now, if you notice, they did not take action until inflation became a political concern. They were fine with it at 3%. They were fine with it at 4%. They were fine with it at 5%. It was only when inflation got so high that all the polls, Pew and Gallup and everything that said, you know, 
if you're a voter in 2022, what, you know, what is the number one thing that you think about? And, and everybody is saying inflation and you have democratic lawmakers calling up the fed, telling them to do something about inflation. They didn't do anything until it became a political concern. They have 400 PhDs at the fed and everybody in FinTwit, you know, back in 2020 was saying, look, we're handing out the stimulus money, the child tax credits, the PPP loans, you know, we're printing all this money. This is going to cause inflation. Everybody knew this and they did not act until it became a political concern. So likewise, the Fed is not going to act when the market declines until people start complaining about it and people start blaming the Fed for crashing the market. So they are late to everything because they act, they only act in fear of embarrassment. I, I like that view. I think that has uh, a high explanatory power. Um, it is true that Powell, based on his time log, spends more time chatting with congressmen than uh, any any Fed president that I could think of. Um, he probably would not say he's swayed by these conversations, but he's definitely having a lot of, of conversations with congressmen. Um, so changing tone, a lot of the, a lot of the reason why your, your newsletter and your, your Twitter is so popular is because, uh, you are a very entertaining writer and you had a tweet today that mentioned that you've been writing your whole life in middle school, high school and, and, and so forth. Um, what in your opinion are some of the, the best fiction and nonfiction in the sort of wall street genre and how early did you know that you were going to write a liar's poker-esque tale uh i so i got i kind of got recruited to do that book so the story is i was at lehman and i was writing stuff every day i was writing this market commentary on bloomberg and it was really good stuff um and there was a guy at my firm who was forwarding it to a literary agent um so when Lehman went bankrupt, I was approached by this literary agent to write a book about Lehman. And so this was like, you know, early 2009. So I had a meeting with this guy and I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to like get involved in everybody's dirty laundry and write a book and have everybody hate me. And just, you know, why would I put myself through all that? So, uh, so about six months later, the guy came back to me again. He's like, come on, come on, come on, come on. Let's do the book. So I agreed to do it, wrote a proposal and sold the book. And that's how I ended up doing the book, but it wasn't my idea. It wasn't my idea at all. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, like wall street genre, I mean, Michael Lewis's stuff is great. I think that my favorite Michael Lewis book is actually, it's not Liar's Poker. It's not the big short. It's the new, new thing. I don't know if you're- I like that, that book. I like that book quite a lot. It's it's funny. I, I think about that one because was it in the new, new thing or next where he tells the story of Jonathan Levitt, the New Jersey kid that got yes. convicted by the SEC? Yeah. Was, was it in new, new thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I- I, I, could, wait, I could be mixed up, but- It was either in next or new, new thing for sure. Um, and I believe it was in new, new thing. And, um, I think about that story quite a bit because the way Lewis tells the story is quite sympathetic to the character, Jonathan Lebed. And the story was essentially that he was a, uh, rich New Jersey suburban kid. And in middle school, his dad gave him, I think a $60,000 trading account. Now, I know it's a little crazy that he, his dad gave him access to his $60,000 trading account, but the story is that in his middle school mind, he thought that the best way to make money in stocks was to buy highly concentrated positions in illiquid companies and then tell everyone about it, scream to, to everyone you can get hold of via forums and all the accounts you can handle and stuff like this. And so that's what he did, and he turned the 60 into somewhere between 1.2 and 1.7 million. 
And then um, the SEC decided to uh, prosecute him and made him, obviously they didn't put him in jail, but they, but they, uh, but they did make him turn over, I believe all of his profits or something like this. Um, and, and Lewis's thought was that the kid was kind of a genius um, and that he, he didn't understand why the kid would be prosecuted when so much worse misbehavior on, on Wall Street for people that should actually know better doesn't go prosecuted. But the reason I think back to this story sometimes is because um, the kid obviously hadn't studied market efficiency or any financial economics stuff. He just had the idea that stocks were essentially a marketing problem and he was going to solve that marketing problem. And, and we see the same thing among less financially sophisticated people now uh, doing crypto and NFT and small cap like that. That's the way the world works now, the Jonathan yeah. Levitt way. Yeah, that's absolutely true. By the way, he's probably like 30 right now. <laughs> yeah something like that <laughs> yeah sure surely he's got some some nft projects going right now um but he was very savvy about the way that he did it and the sec they defended their actions by saying that there were uh just a couple of lines that he crossed that they had to defend i think it was the um the multiple account things were part of the problem that he, no one knew who he was. He didn't have the benefit of like a Wall Street professional who's talking their own book and has some sort of platform. He didn't have a, he didn't have a Twitter following where he could say, buy this. Um, he um, had to create his audience and his chosen way of creating his audience was through Yahoo message boards. Yeah. And he, he quickly realized that um, the best way to create some activity was to have multiple accounts that were commenting on each other. And uh, I believe that was the line that the SEC did not tolerate. Sort of creating a lot of, a lot of chat, chat activity on his own. So that's, that's also the story where um, he... Uh, tells about the competition for the biggest yachts, right? And somebody builds builds the yacht that can barely make it under the the Golden Gate Bridge or something. And then somebody else builds a yacht that's one foot higher or a sailboat that's one one foot higher and can go under at low tide or something like this. It, quite, a, quite an entertaining book. And that was when I believe Michael had just moved from New York to the Bay Area and wrote those two books about, about Silicon Valley. Um, so do you have any other uh, Wall Street favorites? Uh, gosh, let me look at my shelf here. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've read them all. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. So um, you recently started a Substack. How's that experience been for you? That's been that's been good. Uh, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. Um, I'm a little surprised I don't have more subscribers. And let me explain why. So I'm getting close to fifty thousand Twitter followers. Um, I started up the Substack and I got twelve hundred subscribers immediately, like within a day. Um, but I figured, you know, out of 50,000 Twitter followers, I could probably get like five to 10,000 Substack followers. I have like 2,300 and it's growing, but it grows really slow. Um, so, I mean, this is really just like a fun project for me um, where I get to write about stuff that doesn't have anything to do with finance. Um, but I'd like to, I like the following to be bigger. So if you're listening to this, subscribe to my Substack. It's we're going to get those bastards wggtb.substack.com and it's uh it's lots of fun it's lots of fun so maybe it's just an attention span issue uh, people like the soundbite of 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 twitter and there's so much so many high quality soundbites people don't have the attention span anymore for uh 
Well, the funny thing is, the funny thing is about that is I actually I don't think that I'm very successful on Twitter. Um, I I'm actually I really hate the sound bites. I hate the 280 characters. Like I'm very good at long form writing, but I'm not very good at condensing my thoughts into tweets. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that I just don't tweet because I'm like, it's just too nuanced to put into a tweet or even a tweet storm. Like it has to be a long form piece. So that's the thing that I struggle with. I, I can see that for sure. Um, do you have work routines? Cause your output is quite impressive. Uh, do you have a, do you have a way that you organize your day? Uh, I do most of my writing in the morning. Um, you know, when I, I get in around eight o'clock and take care of some emails and stuff and send out my newsletter. And I, you know, I'm basically writing from nine to 12. I write for three hours straight. And then in the afternoon, I'm a little bit fatigued. Uh, I don't like to do much writing in the afternoon, but I still will if I have to. So that's when I just take care of business stuff or whatever. And you're in Charleston? Uh, Pauly's Island. Okay. And for fun, you are a DJ. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been doing that, uh, since 2008. It's, it's a great hobby. Um, I, I, you know, I got a gig coming up in Dallas on March 5th. I have a gig coming up in New York on April 1st. I'm going to be playing in Palm beach in May. Like it's huge amounts of fun, huge amounts of fun. And I'm such a geek about the music. I love nerding out to music. Uh, all my music is on SoundCloud. I record a new mix about once a month, post it on SoundCloud. Actually have a pretty decent following on SoundCloud, interestingly enough. M music definitely seems to generate the biggest followings. If you're on Instagram or whatever, it's definitely musicians that have the biggest followings. I, well, I'll have to come, I'll have to come check that out in, in Palm Beach. I'm in Miami, so in May I'll roll up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, th thanks so much for the time. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. And since since this one is a bit timely, given all the market commentary, I'll try to I'll try to put it out this weekend. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks.